Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Awesome. Well, I, I will read the scripture really quickly, but I want to start off with a little like uh, idea or story. How many of you guys get caught up on when you see a social media feed or a video that tells you that you can lose weight in 30 days? I've fallen into that. And I was like, ah, oh, that's awesome. And then, then, they, then they show, like, then there's these video, you know, workout exercises. And the recent one I saw was someone with two kettlebells kind of just like, like swinging back and forth. And, you know, and then they just advertised, like, just follow our feed. And, you know, if you do this, this, and this in 30 days, you're going to look awesome. And then I read some of the comments and there's some like real life trainers in there. And they're like, if you were a legit certified trainer, you know that this would hurt your back and hurt your knees and all these kind of things. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is, I guess it's not a good thing. And they're promoting it as the one thing that's going to help you lose weight in six weeks. And then people get hooked on it and realize it's going to break their back or their knees. Then you meet a friend whose body really shows it whose life and lifestyle really shows it. And they say, you know what, eat less, work out smarter, see results over time, don't think six weeks, think six months, think six years. But you see it in that person's life, and it's very, very different. And that just, that reminds me that the proof is really in the pudding, right? It's really in like, if you've heard that weird phrase before, the idea is that like when you see it, you believe it. And when someone's actually living it, it, it actually becomes not just a lifestyle, but you see results. And I think living an example is so important because it's not short-term, but it's a long-term commitment to certain principles. And we're in a series called Alert. And the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it means to share good news in a secular world. And we've defined lightly what a secular world is. We didn't want to make this a lecture, university lecture classroom on a Sunday morning. But just this idea that the secular world, one, has a sense where there's a lot of ideas around the table that all almost have equal value in some ways, but sometimes in certain pockets of secularism, faith is contested uh, in a sense like kind of pushed out or seen as neutral. And so what does it mean then to share the good news, which is considered to many people in our world a faith or a religion, and what that means? And so today, I want to think about this idea that like it's, sometimes it's tough in a secular world to see our faith break into or um, be heard. But there's nothing like a really good, true, faithful story to break through the barrier. Isn't that true? There's nothing like a a true, good, faithful story to break through that kind of barrier. And I want to read from a, a New Testament letter that I think will help us understand this idea of life breaking through some of the barriers of our culture. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to it or watch, look in the screen and follow along. Um, I'm reading from the NIV. So let, let's listen to this. This is Peter writing to a first century church um, that has also been struggling in what it means to live the good news in their culture. So he says to them, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 
And they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord or for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's just pray for a moment. God, we so long um, to hear from you through your word and to get a glimpse of what these first hearers would have heard in this time frame, but what that might mean for us today, not in a pre-Christian society, but what we often describe, and we've been talking about this last few weeks, as a post-Christian society. But yet you still remain faithful and you still remain the same, and there are still people searching and hungry for hope. And so we long to be good news in a secular world. Um, help us to glean from that today, from your word. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. This is one of my favorite New Testament letters. I have a, a few favorite New Testament letters, but this is one of them for this particular reason. I have categories of favorites. And this one is because it's such a helpful letter to help us figure out how to be a Christ follower in our current world. Peter's audience and the language he uses already, just in these few verses, you, you hear him call them the, the, his readers, these Christians, exiles or foreigners. What it meant to be an exile was you felt as though you were away from home and you were in another land, and so you were exiled from your home in another land. The Israelites, the Jews felt like this when they were in Babylon, and we read books like Jeremiah in the Old Testament that describe how they felt to be away from uh, their people, away from their home, away from their faith practices. So to be an exile feels like you're somewhere that's not home. Peter calls them exiles, foreigners. In other parts of the, the letter, he calls them strangers or aliens. And so Peter's language is really important for us because that's how they're feeling in that time period. And sometimes, sometimes our culture makes Christians feel like exiles. Not makes them like, oh, what are you doing to us? But just the very fact that as someone comes to Christ and, and, and lives under the lordship of Jesus and begins to be drawn into the kingdom of God and the values of God's kingdom and the life of God's kingdom, the scriptures say that we're like this, an, almost like a citizen of another world, a citizen of God's kingdom. And so we can feel like exiles in a world that doesn't always reflect God's kingdom. Why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's values working into our life and our world. And so sometimes our culture, in our culture, it might feel for some Christians that they feel like exiles or strangers. And see, the values of God's kingdom often go against the current of our culture. When the scriptures say, slow down and honor the Sabbath in a culture of speed, there's a contrast. 
When we're called to be still before the Lord in a, in a culture of noise, there's a, contact, a, a contrast. When we're, when we're growing in generosity towards others in a culture of greed, there's, a, there's a, a, a contrast. When we're called to be people of peace or to pursue peace in a culture of violence, there's a difference. When we're called to nurture faithfulness in our relationships, when sexuality is often seen as disconnected from relationships, there's a contrast. So living out the values of God's kingdom, the vision of God's kingdom, can sometimes feel like a contrast in the world we live in. And increasingly in a post-Christian world that's increasingly secular, we can sometimes feel it even more because we're losing the sense that, oh, there's like uh, more Christians in, the, in our culture, in our population. And yet, it amazes me that Peter's passion is still there. If you go to the next chapter, verse 15, chapter 3, he says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Be ready. Be ready to share good news. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, even though Peter said this, he's still speaking to people who feel like, like strangers and exiles, foreigners. And this is really important for us to understand especially in our day, especially coming off the last 100 or 200 years in the Western world, Jesus never promised that our way of life would be given the stamp of approval by our culture. There's been ebbs and flows in history where it's been given more of a stamp and less of a stamp. There's been ebbs and flows in histories and parts of our geography where it's very embraced or very rejected. But Jesus never promised. In fact, he said, you will have trials and tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, you're in the world, but not of the world. Jesus never promised that our way or the way of his life in us would be given a stamp of approval in our culture. Yet many Christians today confuse sharing good news with forcing culture to agree with the life it produces. Where we sit and say, you should do this. We should be like this. Culture should be like this. And they say, why? And it's because we think so. Therefore, do it. Is it best for everybody? But they're listening, and well, that's great. It's best for you, but it's not best for me. And I think it's important we understand the difference. And whenever the church has tried to use a platform or earthly power to force the world or its region to become Christian, it never really went well. Just read the history books. In fact, I'll give you a reference. There's a great book called Bullies and Saints, the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. Awesome, awesome, sobering read. So when I think about that, how, like, what do we do, you know, while feeling like an exile or a stranger in our own culture, what, what do we do with that? And Peter's letter helps us, actually. And he starts by reminding them and us who we are. He doesn't start saying what to do, but he, he starts by reminding us who we are. And he uses this other language for these readers. They feel like strangers and aliens and foreigners, but he calls them living stones. And he calls them a spiritual house. That though they're living stones, small l, small s, they're connected to the living stone, Jesus. And God is building them into a spiritual house. They're joined together into community that reflects God's kingdom, that same kingdom that announced the good news, that same kingdom where Jesus came announcing, here's the good news, God's kingdom has come near. The same kingdom, God as, is bringing people together, forming them into a community, and these first early Christ followers are hearing from Peter saying, this is who you are. God's building you into a spiritual house. And he, he really speaks... A value and purpose into them. In verse 9, he, he uses 
like Jewish language to speak to a mixed church that are full of Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In other words, you have value. You're part of God's covenant community. Even though you feel like this in your culture, you're part of God's covenant community. And there's some amazing characteristics I think we can pull from that. One is, I think there's a humility when Peter reminds them that they came out of darkness. He says, God called you out of darkness. And we sang about that today. There's a sober reality that I was once in darkness, that I was once without the light, that I was once not under the lordship of Jesus, but under my own leadership or under the leadership of our world, and I was once in darkness, outside of the goodness of God's kingdom, even part of the revolt or rebellion against God's kingdom. It's partly what sin is and what sin does. And so there's a humility there to be reminded, hey, I was once in darkness. Remember where you came from. There's a gratitude in that, that not only did I come out of darkness, but Peter reminds them, you've come into a marvelous light. That's different, right? You were, yeah, yeah, you were once in darkness, but you've come into a marvelous light. God called you. He welcomed you. He brought you in. God did this. And, he, and, and the language is amazing. You know, before, you were not a people. You were a people without mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now you are God's people. You have received mercy. You were once without mercy. Now you have it. You were once not part of God's people. Now you are God's people. And then Peter uses words. In our version in the NIV, he's, it's, it's written, dear friends. But in another version, it might say beloved. As Peter writes to these first Christians, he's like, my beloved, my dear friends, it's like my family, I love you so much. And he wants them to see who they are. This is a characteristic of this community of Christ followers. But there's also a confidence, right? You're a chosen people, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, God's own people. I love that because I think we as Christ followers in any era but especially in today's era, we need to, to grow into a humble confidence. Not an arrogant confidence, a humble confidence. Not also a kind of humility that like we're, we're just, we're nothing. No, but a humble confidence. A humility of where we've come from, who we are, what God has done. He's bestowed mercy on us and we're part of his community, his kingdom, his family. So consider this to these people, right? The gospel has invited them. The gospel has welcomed them. The gospel has transformed them. The gospel has equipped them. The gospel has sustained them. The gospel has joined them together. They're God's covenant community, not based on status, not based on religious activity, not based on achievement, not based on wealth, not based on moral points. Peter just says, you have now received mercy, received, welcomed. I did nothing for it. God did this. So there's something in there in helping them understand their identity that's so vital for the world they live in, and it's important for us too. N.T. Wright says it this way, instead of being a simple group of social outcasts, and I'll pause there, right, which sometimes culture pegged them as social outcasts, foreigners, aliens, instead of being a simple group of social outcasts, they find their identity and cohesion in their spiritual relationship to the living stone, to Jesus very different. So Peter's trying to say, this is who you are in Jesus. And I would pray and hope, and I'm just, I'm putting words in his mouth, that you would have a humble confidence. These are my words, not his, but this is, right, 
humble, that they would have a humble confidence, that we would have a humble confidence in who we are in Jesus. And as they become clear in who they are in their world or how we become clear in who we are in our secular world, we can then ask the question, well, how do we live in this secular world? John came paving the way for Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. Paul went out into villages and the countryside and the cities and often hung out in Jewish sectors with the Jewish synagogue. But then as he went out, like we learned last week and found himself in Athens, he's like, how must I live here in Athens? I must figure this out. It's different than hanging out with my Jewish friends who are not knowing who Jesus is yet. And so we ask the question, well, how do we live in a way that reflects good news? And this is why I love this letter. This is why 1 Peter is such a great letter for our generation and our world today because, see, so many Christians today have believed this lie that culture must affirm our beliefs and behaviors so we can freely worship, so we can freely gather, so we can be free to live the way we're called to live, or so we can freely share our beliefs with others. And we've believed this lie. Now, don't get me wrong. There is so much in the Scripture that calls us to this wonderful uh, rootedness in the Lordship of Jesus. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. The, the whole trajectory of human history is moving towards the Lordship and the full reign without any obstacles of Jesus Christ. The way that God's kingdom will fully come and fully be present, you know, we pray for it, and we pray for it, and we see glimpses of it, but the way one day it will be fully present is when, you know, new creation comes, and Jesus is fully ruling and reigning. So don't get me wrong, that is still part of our hope, part of what we believe about the Lordship of Christ, and in a sense, what we call the world to as well, because we believe there's a goodness to the Lordship of Jesus. We believe there's a goodness to God's kingdom. And everybody, everybody, every person I lock eyes with and everything I see in the world, I genuinely believe that it would be better if they follow Jesus. That it would be better under the Lordship of Jesus. I do. But often Christians today have believed this lie that, that in, the, in the meantime, culture must affirm my beliefs and behavior if I'm going like, to be able to be a Christian in a, any solid way. Peter's readers had no clue what that felt like. No clue what that meant. Peter's words are really important when he identifies them as strangers, aliens, foreigners, exiles in their world. And it leads us to keep thinking, well, how should we live? One of the ways I've seen this recently, I want to bring this about, there's a recent law in Denmark. I don't know if you've heard about it. Denmark recently passed a law that uh, I think they've passed it that is against desecrating holy books. Uh, in that law is the Bible, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Buddhist canon. And what sparked this recent like, lead up to this law is that there was a burning of the Quran in Denmark. And this got people nervous and, and then they made a law about it. But they didn't, they said, well, this happened to the Quran. Let's not just put this law for the Quran, let's make it for the Bible, and then they threw in a couple of other holy books. And I get, it might sound like a good law. I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad, it's like, it's not right to burn holy books. And I'm not even going to comment on that. I just want to bring this about, this interesting piece of information that just happened where this law comes about where now it's, you're going to be put in jail 
if you desecrate a holy book. A few years ago, there was someone who was trying to prove a point and uh, I guess have a comment in a way where he, he rolled up part of the Quran and smoked it as a joint. And that freaked, that freaked everybody out, you know. And, and, um, and so, he, but here's the question, here's the question. Should this be allotted to every religious book? Should this be allotted to all cults, religions? Now, I'm not proposing anybody burn a religious book. I think it's unkind. I think it's unchristian. I think it's unhelpful. I think it, 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 it births division. But here's my question behind that question. Do we need this law to justify what we believe? Do we need this law to give us a platform to share good news in our culture? Do we need this law to secure that future generations will read the Bible? Do you think we need that? I don't think so. See, the New Testament in the early church would have had little or no reference to this whatsoever. Now, when Christians came in power, you know, towards the fourth century and then on, and then when the majority of uh, places like Germany and Europe had Christian um, presence, you know, when Christians got some power and platform, sometimes things worked differently, and it's not always great. But here's the thing. The early church would have had no reference for this kind of law. They were already pushed to the sides. They were already marginalized. They already felt like aliens and strangers. And history shows us that there were pockets when the light of the gospel was so dim or so absent that it didn't even reach certain regions of the world, and yet God was still at work under the surface. God was still at work under the surface. God was still working in people. The, the, the theme of the kingdom of being like a mustard seed was still at work in various pockets of the world where it seemed like the gospel was so dim and so rejected where people weren't allowed to carry Bibles or hold Bibles or read Bibles. I guess this is the big idea. Christians do not need a legal or protected platform to be good news people. We don't need the law to give us freedom to be good news people, to bring good news to the world, not just in what we say, but in how we live. Now, we would welcome it, appreciate it, use it when appropriate, but never strive for it in the ways that the world strives for power. Tim Keller, who recently passed away, served in New York City for many, many years, and he really like cut his teeth in engaging with the secular world in the epicenter of Manhattan. And he saw the, the culture change. He saw the church grow in Manhattan, but he also saw secular culture grow over the last 30 years. And he was asked, like, where do you think culture's going? What do you think is happening? And, and he, he talked about the secularization of the world. And he, he said it really honestly, really openly. He said, I'm not thrilled to lose privilege. Who's thrilled? Whoever's thrilled to lose privilege? I'm not thrilled that our churches might lose privilege in an increasing secular world. But if we do... Even though we don't want, if we do, Keller says, we'll figure it out with the help of the Spirit and how the Spirit has been present in the church in all generations. So as much as we don't, who longs for that? But we also know that God leads us through those situations, right? Amen? I rarely say that, but I asked. Yeah, amen. <laughs> um, so, here, so here's the, thanks, Nick. So here's the thing. Being good news people beyond our words is where Peter is kind of bringing this highlight here. And he, he ends this portion of this, this letter with verse 12 in this, other, in this section that he kind of outlines how Christ followers can live in their culture. And he says these words, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, 
we have to like sensitize that word because what pagan might feel like a, a derogatory word. In that sense, it was like basically anybody in the world, you know, uh, as there was a multiplicity of what it meant to be a pagan in that world. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the world. Here's other versions. Just listen to it. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Another version says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. I think uh, Peterson translates it this way, live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. That's a good one. Live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices. And so I want us to consider Peter's call to us, live such good lives or live, uh, live with honorable conduct or live an exemplary life in the world that we live in, among the world. And I want you to think about concentric circles, like the smallest circle to a larger circle to a larger circle, and how this kind of plays out in our everyday life and in our own walk and in our own decisions. And the first little circle is obviously you and me, me. I'm the little, I'm the circle in the middle. And, and to ask this question is, you know, what does it mean for good news to, to, to flow out of my life? Is the good news of Jesus Christ, is the good news of God's kingdom congruent with my everyday living, my actions, my decisions, my finances, my, my relationships? Has the good news of the gospel so permeated my life that it's reflected in my day, in my decisions, in my workplace that regardless if anybody sees it, it's working in me. Regardless if anybody ever notices it, it's the person I'm becoming. Regardless if anybody says, oh, you look different, I'm living it. That it starts with me. Because if it's good and if it's flourishing and if it's beneficial, then it doesn't matter if anybody sees it. It's good and it's beneficial and it's flourishing because that's what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus, right? Right? And so it starts with me because we are allowing God's spirit then to shape us and because you and I will start to see fruit and we realize it's worth it. And that little me circle is probably the real closest people around you. Like if you live, if anybody lives in your house with you as a family or as a roommate or if you have really close friends, super, super close friends, how you live your life is automatically like they're all part of that. They all see that. That's really important. So it starts with the me circle, regardless if anybody ever sees it, regardless if anybody ever is looking, regardless if anybody ever notices, regardless if anybody ever comes to faith, that the gospel is permeating my life so much that my life is living it. And I guess it comes to kind of like an exercise program or losing weight. Regardless if, everybody's, if anybody ever says, oh my gosh, you look awesome in that shirt. <laughs> Or, wow, you've really lost weight. Or, hey, where'd those muscles come from? Regardless, if anybody ever says that, you just do that for yourself because you know that it's good. And that's, that's really getting down to the center point. The next circle is the we circle. And it's, it's expanded to the church because Peter is not just talking to individuals. He's talking to a community. It's always plural. It's always plural. Live such good lives among the world around you. The spiritual house that, that God is building among these living, all of us, these living stones, uh, God's people, you know, think about that, to conduct yourselves together as a community, because the good news is worked out in Christian community. 
So if the gospel is permeating my life and the gospel is about grace and reconciliation and justice and generosity and hospitality, think about that. Is grace being worked out in our relationships? Is there moments of confession between us? Is there moments of extending forgiveness within the body of Christ? When something goes wrong, do people reconcile? Is there racial justice within the community of the church? Is there unity and hospitality and compassion and justice among us? Because remember, Jesus said, you're like salt and light. Peter calls us a community. The kingdom, you know, when we, when, we, when we think about God's kingdom, we realize that the whole world around us might not engage in that. But even as the early church in these small little pockets, all that stuff was happening among them in their homes, in their groups, in their church gatherings. Good news is not only talked about, but it's embodied. And again, regardless if people outside the church see it, it's how the church grows to live. Regardless if anybody outside our church community ever sees someone come and extend forgiveness or someone come and confess to someone or someone uh, extend hospitality or grace to someone else or compassion, if nobody ever sees it, it's, it's still a reflection of God's kingdom among us, right? It's kind of like what happens on my kitchen table. It, it doesn't matter what my neighbors see at that point. If we as a family around our table are not treating one another with respect, are not making room for one another, are not forgiving one another when we wrong each other in our home, it doesn't matter if my neighbor sees it or not. The point is, am I living it? Am I loving my wife? Am I loving my kids? Are we loving each other? Are we learning how to be th these people together in a home? Like, is, is it functioning in the home? Is what's happening inside that home flourishing and good and joyful and growing? And so I, I need to pursue this whether people can see it or not. doesn't matter if the neighbor on my right or my left or down the street knows that at the, at the table, man, we had a conflict, um, but... We worked it out, some confession, some awkward silence, some reconciliation. It's just good whether my neighbor sees it or not, right? It's good in the church whether the world sees it or not, because that's what we're called to. But there's an overflow as people start to engage that community. There was a, um, a woman in our church through email, I was just talking with her about like getting involved and serving and things like that. She had some questions and there was someone else from the church that had reached out to her during a, a time where she, something was going on with her family and she's only been part of the church for maybe eight or ten months. And just that, just that action, that action that went from this one woman to another woman, expressing care, concern, you're on my radar, how are you doing can I chat with you this week? What do, just that led that one person to say, I'm so grateful for this community. Didn't go outside the walls. Nobody posted on social media. Nobody took a picture. Just happened. Sorry, I just said it now, but you don't know who it is. And it's like, it's there, right? Because that, that, that's what it means. It, it, it happens inside of us. Leslie Newbegin uh, wrote a book. I think it's called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. But he writes this. I love this phrase. He says, Jesus did not write a book. He formed a community. Jesus did not write a book. People wrote about Jesus, the disciples, 30 years later. Jesus did not write a book. He formed a community. 
And this next quote from Newbegin, I think, helps us just to this, the last concentric circle. I love this. So listen to this closely. He says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has at, at the last work in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer the only hermeneutic means the interpretation. The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. How is it possible that the gospel would be credible? How is it possible that people should come to believe in this power working in human affairs from someone who hung on a cross? How is it possible? The only fullest answer is that the hermeneutic or interpretation of the gospel is a community, a congregation of men and women who believe it and live it. And that's what Peter's calling us to, to live such good lives among our world, to live out the gospels, not to be goody two-shoes, not to like, you know what, I'm going to make sure that I please everybody. I'm not talking about that, but it's the kind, not a, a heavy kind of weight that way, but a sense of what the good news is how the good news is flowing out of us, and it leads to the world. That's that last circle. Who they are, who we are because of the gospel, then becomes a witness to the world around us. So then the, king, the good news of God's kingdom is not only for me, it's not only for us, but it's for the world around us. It's for the world around us. Even though Peter is writing to a group of Christians who would have cowered behind their closed doors is like, I don't, I don't know if we should even talk to anybody or meet anybody or tell anybody, you know, what we believe and, you know, just the plethora of, of ideas in the Roman world and they would just kind of, and Peter's like, I know how you feel. I know how you, you feel like strangers, like aliens, like exiles here, but live such good lives among, in front of the world around you that they would turn and see, yes, I know we don't like this phrase, but see your good deeds, your life, and praise your Father in heaven on the day he visits us. That the world would then, yes, there is opportunity then. We don't do it for that. I don't do it, I shouldn't do it for that in my little circle. We shouldn't do it for that in our medium circle. But there is a witness to the world around us that they may see this life and then praise or worship or acknowledge or recognize our Father in heaven on the day he visits us. In other words, when, when the full consummation of, of eternity is set, when new creation comes, that people would be part of God's kingdom. That's the heartbeat that, that Peter has here. So the question is, can people taste the good news in you and me? Can they see, can they taste, can they sense the good news in you and me? Are they experiencing the tangible effect of God's kingdom? When Jesus came announcing the good news and the church began to grow, and we think about it for ourselves, is the world experiencing the effect of God's kingdom? Not do they agree with us, not do they give us a platform for what we believe, not will they enact a law so we can live the way we think we should live, do they see the tangible effects of God's kingdom? Because Peter's writing to a group of people that had no law, that had no protection, that had no power, that had no platform, and yet he still believed that part of God's plan and purposes to be good news in their culture was that others would see God at work among them, to see this good news at work. There was um, a rental here at, the, at our 
church building, and uh, it was a group of teachers from a local school. And one of the teachers came back later in the afternoon because they had um, thought they lost their keys here. So they came back, and they, they came back to look for the keys later in the afternoon. And uh, I'm going to keep, you know, their name and their, who they are just anonymous just to respect them. But when they walked to the office door, um, I remember this person because this person supervised our school rental 14 years ago, 13 years ago, when we rented from this school. They weren't a Christian. Um, we had some pretty interesting discussions about faith. Let's just say that they were antagonistic towards faith. Uh, and, 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 you know, but they, they supervised our rental for a year and a half. So they walked into the office. I mentioned their name. I saw this person 14 years ago. I don't remember everybody's name that well, but I just remember that. And this person said, you remember my name from then? I remember how badly I treated you guys. I remember the horrible conversations I had with some of you guys in the team and, and how much like I would kind of trash your faith and the whatever. I mean, I like to come stand in the back sometimes and listen to the music, but I totally disagreed with this, you know, faith and whatever. And she was really combative at the time, you know. And so I said, hey, that's okay. Uh, and that's fine. I, I get it. And then she said, though, at this moment, she said, I'm, I'm so glad to see what your community has become. She's not a Christian. She's, she hasn't like, you know, I don't think she's moved in that direction. But she said, I'm so glad to see what your church has become that this group of people who rented this school, like you guys have just, you know, are evident and present in the community. And we are able to benefit from your building today for our meeting and that just blew me away that she didn't, you know, come and say, I want to hear more. Please tell me about Jesus. <laughs> but she, she moved a little bit, maybe towards, like last week, maybe towards scorning to a little bit of curiosity. And it's not my role to push her, force her down that line, but it just, I just stopped and I just said, thank you so much, God. Because we don't... We, don't know when you're working and how you're working and what, what effect we might have on people. Imagine 15 years ago we'd say, you're so crazy, you're out to lunch. <laughs> like, why are you getting mad at us? We have every right to be in this school and to teach this. And like, that would have been horrible. And that just taught me, it just reminded me how much in our world today, why that matters so, even more today. It matters so much today. And T. Wright says, serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than simply overthrowing one corrupt regime and replacing it. Now, he's referring to Rome at the time. But we can think about that in terms of structures, systems, economies, governments, culture, whatever it is. But I just want to lean on this part. Serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than trying to force our way into culture. I'm going to ask the team to come up as we close our gathering with communion. We have a few moments left to do this. And as they come and just begin to, to play uh, and lead us into that. I, I want you to just consider this. What we're talking about here, w Peter's letter was written in a pre-Christian world. 
And that pre-Christian world existed for about three to four centuries in that part of the world because the church was just a tiny... Any, any, any letter we read in the, in the New Testament, there wasn't more than 30, maximum 50 people meeting. Max. One church in Rome, 50 people. Maybe a few groups. In Ephesus, one group. In Macedonia, where Lydia started a church. Like, just think about that. It was a pre-Christian world. The, think about the, what happened in the first 300 years of the church. This fragile, exiled group of Christ followers that were viewed as strange grew from this small community over th three centuries to become 20, 30 million people in, in our world. 40% growth a decade. I'm not saying that to project growth on us. I'm just saying that in the middle of a culture that was antagonistic towards them, in the middle of a culture, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, the, just the plurality of, of, of what that culture meant in that world, in the middle of, of feeling like they had no power, no platform, no voice, somehow God used them to keep reaching people. And today, you know, we don't always, we, we look, we're starting to look more like a pre-Christian world than a, a Christendom world. We look very different today than 1500s Europe when Martin Luther started the Reformation. You know what Martin Luther and John Calvin uh, didn't understand that we understand? Do you know that almost everybody they looked at on the street was a Christian? That was their world. That, good or bad, that's just what it was. We, that's not the case for us today. We have to recognize that. And so as we, as we come to this close just for today, I want us to consider that what it means to live the good news in ordinary ways. And last, yesterday afternoon, I was reading a chapter of this book, and I didn't plan to share this, but it just jumped out at me. And um, great book, by the way, Resilient Faith. And he, he talks about this one Roman leader. His name was Celsus. And uh, he was part of the Roman intellectual elite at the time at about uh, year 170. He lived around that time. And so in that time period, uh, Christians then, like they perhaps, perhaps by 170, maybe were like 100,000 people in the middle of 60 million people in the Roman Empire. And uh, you have to think about it. Very little cultural power, no platform, no, very little money or no money at all. And they attracted mainly the poor, uh, slaves, merchants, artisans, household servants. And so there was no schools, no buildings, no architecture of any significance. And so why would a member of Rome's elite write a book against them? He wrote a book called On the True Doctrine. And he actually said, like, because it bothered him that this new faith attracted lowly people, wool workers and cobblers and people of a similar status. And then he writes this. And it bugged them so much because they all believed in this obscure man who died on a cross. And he says this, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable and stupid, and only slaves, women and little children. This is what, how he was knocking them at the time. But he noted that Christians won converts, not through their public debates among the elites, as Celsus would have wished, but through the quiet witness in their homes and places of work. He found that disconcerting. 
But he says, this is what they're doing to the quiet witness in their homes and places of work. They're a witness to the world around them. They're not on the public stage. They're not debating the elites. They're not in government through the quiet witness. You guys can start as we close. And it just made, reminded me of our day and age today. We've been talking about secularism the last couple of weeks. Please don't get this from me. I don't believe one bit that secularism is the answer for our world. I just believe it's the water we swim in. It's not the answer for our world. It's the water we swim in. It's proven to be shallow to meet the struggles and the crises of our world. That even through innovation and intellect and incredible technology over the last 200 years and getting to the moon and being, having crazy amount of, of ammunition and warfare and in an instant we can talk to someone around the world and soon... You know, you can, well, already you can speak into a computer and get like another language back. And, you know, the next iteration of ChatGBT is going to speak to you. And there's just, it's like, this is, this is the water we swim in. I'm not saying it's the answer. I'm saying it's the water we swim in. But I still believe in the middle of all this, the world is desperate for hope. They're desperate for hope. And Peter calls us to recognize that even if we don't have the power or the platform or we don't know this person or that person at this high level or we're not talking with the elites or whatever, doesn't mean that we can't. It doesn't mean that we won't have those conversations. Many of you are in all parts of our society and top and bottom and up and down and different spots and different levels of wealth, and that's okay. But the beauty of it is that, you know, as we're called here today, let's live the good news life among the world around us. Amen? Let that be the part of the main way that God uses us. And trust me, words, you will have opportunity for words to follow. But let's take this initiative from Peter and from the early church in this way. Let's just pause and pray. Lord, we're so grateful for how we've been reminded of who we are in you. We don't use these words in any prideful way, but we're so grateful that we, though we were, came out of darkness, though we were without mercy, we are in our people with mercy and part of your covenant community. And we thank you that the beautiful language of chosenness, of holy priesthood, of um, being a holy nation, being a people belonging to the Lord, that that is the language that reminds us of who we are because Jesus is our Lord and you are our Heavenly Father and your Spirit lives within us. We thank you that this is who we are in you and in Christ and through the work of the Spirit. And God, as you call us to live among our world, oh God, may we trust that that is part of your plan. May we trust even in the most simple, simple ways that we spread this good news. And while we don't carry this as an, as an obligation or burden to look perfect to the world around us, we've been freed from that because of grace. We've been freed from that because of the cross. But you do call us to be intentional and to lean in to live a life among our neighbors, among our networks, in our world that would reflect the goodness of your kingdom. And so would you
grow us and empower us and transform us and convict us where needed. And may it start for each and every one of us, Lord, right in that center circle, that because it's so good and so wonderful and so true, we're willing to live it just because of that. And that because it's so good and so wonderful that it's, it, 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 we long for that in the deepest, closest, smallest relationships and in our church community. But we also, because we know that there's so much goodness and flourishing under the Lordship of Jesus, we so long for the world to know and the world to hear and the world to experience and the world to be curious and the world to recognize and yes, for the world to come and repent and turn and follow Jesus. God, we pray for that. Would you use us in any way, in any pocket of our life that you see fit? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.